Hello, once again, my friends. Has it been a week already? My goodness, how time flies. The summer came so quickly, and I already feel it. It's not waning just yet, but it is growing tired of itself, I think. I can't really feel it. I don't really feel the heat. I feel that at certain times rather than others, the trees are growing more quickly. The grass is getting thirsty. The animals of the woods are lethargic. I feel the difference in the air, but it doesn't quite bother me. I am unchanging. Unchangeable. Except for the fact that there are more little plants decorating me. Little green growing things scattered across my limbs. Even tiny little summer flowers. Colorful and fragrant. Sprouting from the little peaks where my bones show. Here and there over my collarbones. Settled on a knuckle or two. Growing from my temples. Up and down my spine. I don't mind them. I don't remove them unless they impede me from shuffling my deck of cards, or telling you a story, or seeing through the little windows of my home of vines and roots and tree innards. Even then, if I like the color or shape of them, I'll work around them. One must have room to grow. To change. To adapt to improve. I whisper this to myself silently as the voice outside of my home speaks to me even still. That voice in the forest. It has come more frequently lately, and its source glows brighter and more red. I think it grows impatient. Have I ever felt such a useless emotion as impatience? I can't remember. But the voice speaks to me of what I once was. Of the size of my great wings that I decided to grow, and so I simply grew. Of my old black eyes, deep and hungry for something that I could never find. Of a being craving change, delighting in the destruction of systems that sought to control me and others. I am not not those things anymore. I still crave. I feel it deeply. But I feel that I am brave now. I do not want to fly away from the world. I don't want to run away. Not that I could, but I don't want to. So strongly do I want to stay here that I have trapped myself in a little home within the earth, after all. I love it here. I won't leave. I will be brave. But I must first be patient. I think there is a message that I need to receive first. I couldn't possibly tell you from where. From my cards, perhaps. From you, possibly. From the voice in the woods, maybe. I am listening. I am waiting. I must be perfectly ready. I drew another card from my deck this week, because that is what I must do, 
as you most likely know now. It is only the fifth story from this new season of ours, and I've already drawn a third from the Major Arcana. This one. This was Judgment. Interesting. This card speaks to a sort of inner calling to rise up and change for the better. To learn from your mistakes and sins of the past, and use them to undergo a metamorphosis. To change into an improved self. And with that change might come absolution, perhaps penance. We all have those things in our past that cause us regret. We must say goodnight to guilt and shame, but not without thanking them for teaching us how to be better. Once we do this, we can rise up to our full potential. Take me, for example. No, I know that I'm not fully done with saying goodbye to who I was, but I believe that I might be close. And every day that I grow closer, more little beautiful living things sprout on my skin. Perhaps there is one for every person I've ever hurt. But I feel strong. I feel ready for this change. I am ready to let go. We are not through from judgment, not even in death. Why else do we see ancient figures who govern the dead equipped with scales? I wonder. Well, in fact, I do know a story of such a one, trapped in judgment even after death. Shall I tell it to you? Why not? You are off to sleep soon, I hope. Or perhaps not, perhaps you are just here to listen to a story, not to let it take you away to sleep. That's quite all right. Either way, you're safe with me for the next hmm, twenty minutes or so. No matter how frightening the tale, or how frightened its heroes, you are safe. Remember that as you listen. The card, Judgment, will reveal its nature to you in time, too. Here we go. Once a woman entered a lonely, decrepit, deserted boarding school. Many years before, thirty years to the day, in fact, she had entered this place as a small child. She was afraid then, and she was afraid now. Only now there were no children lined up in the hall, waiting for their hands to be inspected for dirt. It was difficult, given that they barely had soap or water. They barely had anything apart from their grimy shifts and the threadbare smocks that sat atop them. Rarely washed caps hid their hair. Ill-fitting shoes covered their feet. The woman could almost see them there, as clearly as she had seen them when she first arrived at this terrible place. This place that caused her nightmares ever since her departure. Her graduation, if one could call it that. These schools were not uncommon, I'm told, in this so-called enlightened time, in this so-called civilized place. I say that in what I understand to be called a sarcastic way, 
because I know that keeping children in cold buildings of stone, and disciplining them as if they should have been born with a set of ridiculous societal rules already ingrained in their natural brains, well, I know that this is wrong. But we know that such places existed. Just because they were not uncommon does not mean that they were right. Anyway, this woman returned to what was once her prison. She was no longer a trembling child. She was no longer small. She was no longer powerless. She was big and strong now, upright and laced tightly in whalebone, a plumed hat that she imagined could touch the sky. She wore what made her feel the most powerful in this world. And she was powerful. Despite all odds, she had made something of herself. A keen intellect with an impassioned heart. She sought to right wrongs all across her country by the strength of her words. And though she could viciously fight for children everywhere, she could not fight the memory of this place. And she tried. She had tried to push away the pain she endured. She had tried to pretend it never happened. She tried to tell herself that it was good, actually, for it had shaped her into the woman she was today. But none of this worked. On her skin and in her heart, she still bore scars. Whether they were from the cruel crack of a switch, or from deliberately hurtful words, they had come from one person, and one person only. The Headmistress She was the one who had created such a desolate place as this, through what she called discipline, in an attempt to build character. She had cultivated a world of fear and shame at which she stood in the center. Anything was considered a transgression. Dirty nails, unkempt hair, wayward eye contact, a whispered word. Anything was considered a sin as long as she deemed it to be so. And sins were punished, harshly. I choose not to tell you more about how she punished her students. Enough writers from long ago have done a better job than I ever could of describing the hardships children often faced in places such as this. And as I think I might have told you in a previous life, I detest violence. I abhor cruelty. I do not like to depict it. I am no writer. Wait. Am I not? No. No, if I recall, there is a writer somewhere. I feel as though I've said this before. Have I? Well, if it's not me, then who is it? Do you hear a click clacking somewhere distantly? Like fingers moving up and down, tip-tapping, click-clacking. Oh, never mind. I think this is something that a past me might dwell on. 
I'm not sure whether or not I shall. As part of the change I must undergo, I think that I must decide what I choose to dwell on and what I choose to release. Anyway, forget what I just said. I don't want to share anything overly cruel or violent or painful with you. I told you that you were safe, and I would like to keep you safe. Now, let's gently return to the story. The fact remains that this big and strong woman who entered this building suddenly felt very, very small and very, very weak as she returned to this place of torment. For, finally at the end of her rope with the nightmares and the lingering pain, a kind soul with a theory about trauma suggested to her that she confront her fears. If she were to be face to face with that which haunted her, she might realize it is no longer a threat to her. But she didn't realize that. Not yet. She dropped her bags in the front hall and shut the door behind her. She took a deep breath. I'm back, she said to no one. And the school echoed her voice back to her. She had intended to stay the night. The coach took her to this place this afternoon. He would return the following morning. She would have no means to head back to the city on her own. For better or for worse, this was her home for the night. Trembling, she placed her rations in the kitchen. Shaking, she unpacked several books and journals in the study. And, now in a cold sweat, she placed her valise in the dormitory. She knew exactly which one had been her bed. Of course, she knew several children must have slept here after her. They had been there before her. They were there after, until the school was finally shut down. But this bed had been hers. She didn't intend to sleep here. She suspected that she might not sleep at all. The cot was filthy and no longer had a mattress, as she had expected. She would likely spend the night in the headmistress's study making use of the most warm and comfortable place in the building. But she had to see the dormitory. She changed into more comfortable dressing gowns, knowing she would not expect any visitors tonight. She returned downstairs to the kitchen. She made herself a humble meal, returned to the study, set a small fire for herself in the fireplace, and settled in. At first, it wasn't so bad, really. In fact, she was surprised that she had ever been frightened in the first place. The first hour passed comfortably. The second hour flew by without her even noticing it had been there. The third hour, her eyelids began to grow heavy. So warm and safe, she felt. Safe. Here. Indeed, the theory was proving to be true. She had nothing to fear here. Nothing at all. And then she heard the sound of something. It was a familiar sort of jingling. Jingle, jangle, 
gently in a steady rhythm. The fire began to die just a little as a cold breeze seemed to fly through the chimney's flue. Why did this sound make her heart stop? Why should it make her eyes fly open and her pupils shrink and her hands shake? When the jingle jangle was accompanied next by the sound of heavy footsteps, quick and furious, she knew exactly why. Only one person had ever had keys to this place. Keys for every room, brandished like a symbol of power hanging at her hip clipped to her skirts, tarnished and rusted from use and lack of care. The headmistress. No, that cannot be what I'm hearing, our hero tried to tell herself. How was it possible? Surely it was a different sound, and if she were truly big and strong now and unafraid of her own past, she would seek out its source and confirm her logical conclusion. She took her candlestick and wrapped a fleece over her shoulders, hair down and wild, something she would readily be punished for during her long stay here as a girl. She went out into the hallway. The jingling stopped, and with it, the footsteps. All was dark. She hadn't realized how much time had passed. She lit a few candles in the hall, scattered so that she could find her way around if she needed to. Of course, the howling wind and the creaks of the old and untended structure rang out loudly. It sounded exactly the same as it had when she was last here. Hugging the fleece around her even more tightly, she slowly returned to the little study. Carefully, quietly, she pulled her journal out once more and continued to busy herself with work. Another hour, another two, she almost allowed herself to feel safe and powerful once more. By the time she looked at her pocket watch and saw that it was midnight, she felt a little relieved that the night was going by so quickly, or so it seemed. But then, faster and louder than before, so much more loud that she could feel the walls vibrating with each step. The jingling and the walking returned. She didn't move. She would have gone out into the hall if her feet would have allowed her to stand. But they didn't. She just waited. Waited. While the sound rang all around her. While the sound happened to her. When it finally stopped, she still couldn't move. Distantly. In another corner of the school, perhaps in the direction of the dormitory, she heard what sounded like weeping. Like something small and afraid, sobbing, in distress, in pain. No, she thought to herself. Please, no, not again. For she'd heard the sound before. The sound of weeping ringing through these halls had been a frequent occurrence, 
and hearing it again, she couldn't bear it. She clapped her hands over her ears and squeezed her eyes shut, just as she had done as a girl. But that did nothing against the sound this time. Louder and louder it grew. She had to go to it. As a child, she wasn't able to help or to stand up. Perhaps now she could, and perhaps this would crush her nightmares finally. She grabbed her candlestick and entered the hall once more, where her other candles lay on the ground, extinguished. It was dark as a tomb once more. And the crying stopped. Only the howling of the wind remained. She refused to move no matter how badly her feet wanted her to retreat back to the study. She would not be moved. She would not let her fear drive her away. Perhaps it is all in my mind, she thought to herself. And she thought she might deceive herself that that was true. Until she saw her with her own eyes. In the little light that her candle afforded her, she saw her own shadow cast across the floor. But, even taller and larger than hers, was the one right beside it. So tall that it made her shadow look like that of a child. It was so thin and wiry, that she might have mistook it for a skeleton or a wraith if it weren't for the silhouette of skirts, complete with the ring full of keys, hair pulled tightly up and back, in stark contrast to her own shadow's unruly mane. She thought it might be a trick of light, a trick of her mind. Staring at orange candlelight for so long can make one see the strangest things. But when the other shadow raised a skeletal arm up in halting, sputtering movements, like a series of images in a kineograph or a flip book, and seemed to be reaching for her, she screamed and ran. She ran through the place desperately though not knowing to where, up, up and up the stairs, scrambling and tripping over herself, weeping like a child once more. No, no more, not again, she muttered to herself. It can't be, it can't be. And she found her way to the dormitory. Slamming the door behind her, she went to her little cot and hid under the bed. She knew that it was a futile gesture, but she felt like a child in this place, and so she operated with a child's instincts. She covered her mouth and wept as she heard the heavy, quick footsteps and the jingling of keys, faintly at first, then growing louder and louder. The sound stopped as it neared her little cot. Our hero didn't dare to breathe. She heard, not very far from her at all, the rasping breath of something that had not been alive for many, many years. 
and it resumed its walking, the footsteps and the jingling growing fainter once more, as the headmistress passed her by and made her way to the other side of the huge room full of empty old beds. Our hero waited and waited. For a brief moment, there was blessed silence. And then, she heard the weeping once more, echoing out into the great chamber from a distant corner, small and soft and desperate. It must have been a child, if such a thing as ghosts existed, as the ghost of this cruel headmistress clearly did. Then somehow, she figured, the ghost of a child was locked here with her. Perhaps a sickly child. There had been many in this time and place, it saddens me to say. Perhaps a sickly child had passed away within these walls, and was now trapped with this monster of a woman, forever. And that child was now afraid, for its tormentor was approaching. She could practically see the memory from her childhood, and was certain that she was part of this memory once more. Had her own pain brought her all this way, not to free herself of this torment, but rather perhaps to protect a spirit of an innocent child? Certain and empowered, she made her way out from under the bed. She stood tall, she was big, and she was strong, and she was powerful. With great strides and quick steps, she moved towards the weeping, and she cried, I won't let you do this again. I won't let you. But when she found the source of the sound, there was no child there. In the light of the moon, for her candle had long been abandoned. She made out the figure of a huddled adult, thin and wiry, dressed in long gray skirts that were now moth-eaten, torn and soiled. Her body was still wrapped tightly in the coarse fabric of her gown, and she had always been built like a skeleton even in life, so the gown still fit her perfectly. But our hero knew that something was wrong, when she saw the figure's hands covering its face. Those hands were grey, too, and also decked with strange holes. Bone could be seen in places. The nails were overgrown and yellowed. The skin was tearing in places and torn in others. And she wept into her hands. Indeed, she sounded like a small child. Show me your face, our hero demanded, though her voice faltered through terrified tears. And the thing in front of her obeyed. There it was, that face that haunted her memories. Different indeed, for she could see rotting teeth through the pockets of missing flesh in her cheeks. She could see eyes that were milky and pale set in hollow eye sockets, 
barely kept in place by leathery gray eyelids. Her hair was as tight as it had ever been, but now white, still a perfect chignon. Her lips were drawn back over those terrible teeth, but it was her. It was the headmistress, unrecognizable to our hero, not because of the fact that it had been thirty years since she had seen her, and not because of the fact that she was seemingly a rotting cadaver, but rather because she was crying. Her eyes were sad and despairing. The lines around her mouth that had been carved in anger during her life seemed strangely out of place with the helpless frown her rotting lips were set in. And somehow, tears flowed down her face and stained her dress. Her dress was soaking wet. She must have always been crying. When she looked in our hero's eyes, she lunged forward to her knees to grab her skirt. At first our hero recoiled in horror, but when the headmistress bowed her head to the ground and continued to weep, she was moved to pity. Forgive me. Forgive me. The woman muttered over and over. How long the years must have been where this dead woman had wandered these empty halls, alone and afraid. Our hero didn't know her story. She didn't know just at what point, whether it was in life or in death, this woman had discovered and understood the depth of her cruelty. The little children. The little children. She whispered hoarsely, gasping deeply and sobbing. I wanted to help, and then it all went wrong. Lost, lost, so lost I was. She whispered these things over and over, and it became clear to our hero that she was trapped in a prison of her own design, and she knew it. Not only did she know it, but she understood why she deserved it, and it was tormenting her. It had been tormenting her for decades. In life, she was so intent on forcing others to atone for what she considered to be sins. But in death, she had ample time to realize the gravity of her own. But. How can one be forgiven for one's sins when one is all alone? The poor woman. Our hero knelt to the ground, too. Unafraid of her putrid flesh, she held the headmistress's hands in her own, aware of the fact that she could only speak for herself, not for the hundreds of other children who had been so hurt by the actions and words of this woman through the years. She found courage. She found courage to say it, not expecting any outcome, but because it would be a comfort to the headmistress and a comfort to herself as well. She looked into those empty, yet desperate eyes that seemed to beg, and, though she was a horror to behold, for the first time, 
she found that she was not afraid of her. And she said, gently, slowly, squeezing those bird-like hands tightly, I forgive you. And the headmistress inhaled deeply. Her eyes widened in some middle ground between joy, disbelief, and relief. And our hero could swear that over the next few fleeting moments, she could see this woman become human again, whole again. At first old, the age at which she'd passed, then the same age she was when our hero knew her. Then she was a young woman once more, her face full of hope, the face of a girl who had never intended to spend her life causing harm. And as she exhaled, she closed her eyes. So too did our hero. When she opened them, the headmistress was gone. Our hero waited in that room until morning, which was only perhaps an hour away, to make sure that the headmistress did not return. She did not deserve any more despair. She did not return. She was gone. As the sun rose and streamed into the dormitory, the woman who now sat alone here had a different memory. She remembered seeing this room at dawn before. And though so many days had been awful and painful, she realized she forgot how beautiful early mornings were in this room. She forgot how sweet the sound of the birds was. She had been so afraid of the horror from her past that she had forgotten the small moments of loveliness, too. She packed her bags. She put on her strong whalebone corset and her tall, plumed hat. And she waited for the coach to take her back to the place she most felt herself, though in a way that would forever only strengthen her and no longer weaken her. She would carry the memory of this place with her from now on, too. As always, of course, I visited this place. I've lived many years and many lifetimes, and I've taken many forms, or so it seems. So, of course, I visited this place, after I had heard the story from the heroic woman, who had spent her lifetime exactly as she wanted to. The school was empty just as it should be. There is always time. There are always chances. The judgment card speaks of atonement and absolution, but only if it is for the purpose of improving, of letting go of how we have failed in the past, so that we can fully manifest what we should be when we reach our potential of what we were meant to be. The voice outside of my home has gone silent. But I can tell that they are there. I can see that reddish-orange light glowing very dimly.
whoever they are. I think they liked this story. I hope that you did too, dear listener. And I hope that you have sweet dreams tonight. Take care. Hi there, friends, and thanks so much for tuning into episode 105 of On a Dark, Cold Night. This is Kristen Zaza speaking. I'm the podcaster, writer, performer, composer, and creative team behind the show. I hope you've had a good week, wherever you are, and whatever you did. I also hope that this next one will treat you kindly, too. I have one new patron to thank this week, sending a big thank you to Howard Gostin, our new supporter via Patreon. Thank you so much, Howard. I'm so grateful for your help. Every patron, regardless of what monthly amount they pledge, can receive access to my constantly updated soundtrack of the show. If this is something that would interest you and you'd like to support in this way, like Howard, then check out our page at patreon.com slash darkcoldnight. You can also support via a one-time donation without the soundtrack perk by contributing through coffee. Visit my page there at ko-fi.com slash darkcoldnight. And if you'd like to get cozy in an On a Dark Cold Night t-shirt or hoodie, then check out our merch at bonfire.com slash on-a-dark-cold-night. I would just like to say quickly that I completely understand that these times are very uncertain for so many of us right now. Supporting the show financially is absolutely not something that I expect of my listeners, but I'm so grateful if you do think it's something you can manage right now. On that note, if you want to help out but can't in this particular way, which again, I completely understand, you can also help out, as always, by leaving a positive review for the show for us on iTunes, Stitcher, or our Facebook page just called On a Dark Cold Night. I'm also on YouTube under the title of the show. You can subscribe and like my videos there too, if you like. I'd also love it if you followed me on social media. I'm on Twitter at A Dark Cold Night, Instagram at Dark Cold Night Podcast, and on my aforementioned Facebook page. Thank you so very much for listening in tonight. I hope this story wasn't too scary for you. I think that the judgment card is one that can mean so many things, and I think it is so positive in so many ways. I'm going to carry it with me in my thoughts and actions this week, and hopefully longer. If you need to, perhaps you can join me in this. Thank you again for spending this time with me. Take care of yourselves and rest well. Good night, my friends. This podcast has been brought to you by the Sonar Network. Sonar.